0: Ladies and gentlemen, Benall of
1: America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Benall. Friends, This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. This week we are concluding our conversation with Gian Kassar, author of the amazing book Into the Bermuda Triangle. Already got a ton of email from folks who are very happy to see us exploring the infamous triangle, which seems to have fallen off the map in esoterica over the past few years. And if you enjoyed last week's episode, you're definitely going to dig this week's edition, as it's just as thorough covering all sorts of triangle-related stuff, including a lot of peripheral elements in esoterica that may be related to that mysterious realm in the Atlantic Ocean. In part two here of our interview with Gianca Sar, we're going to begin where we left off last week on the cliffhanger, We're going to be discussing what we know about what actually happens inside the triangle from those folks who have entered its domain, had bizarre experiences, and lived to tell the tale. Jian's going to share some fascinating and terrifying stories of triangle near misses. We're going to talk about the infamous electronic fog, which seems to be a telltale sign of triangle troubles. We're going to touch on the Devil's Triangle in the South China Sea, the criminally under-researched Great Lakes Triangle right here in the United States, tangential esoteric elements that have been tied to the triangle, such as the Atlantic Ridge and the theories of worldwide catastrophe around 4000 BC, Vimini Road, Edgar Cayce's Atlantis predictions, the Indian Vamanas, Martian and Lunar anomalies, and the dreaded four-letter word of esoterica, UFOs. Plus, we'll find out if Gian thinks it's even possible to study the Triangle, the long-term positive byproduct of the Triangle disappearances. Smashing the fourth wall, we're going to talk about Gian's role in the resurgence of Triangle popularity and his impending book on Bigfoot, an amazingly compelling teaser there at the end for Gian's next book on Bigfoot. You definitely want to stick around to hear that. Plus, as always, tons and tons more it's yet another jam-packed edition of BOA Audio as we're emerging from the fog that is the Bermuda Triangle with our guest, Gian Kassar, author of Into the Bermuda Triangle. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Gian Kassar, go back and listen to Part 1, What's the Matter with You? If for some reason you're only listening to Part 2, here is his bio. Gian Cassar is recognized as the leading authority in the world on the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle the man responsible for taking the subject out of the haze of two decades of debunker-driven obscurity and placing it in its actual and often disturbing light. He is the first person to completely document the Bermuda Triangle, incident by incident. His research began over 15 years ago, and he has compiled the largest private repository of reports and official maritime documents, containing over 350 cases spanning two centuries. Over 150 of these disappearances have happened in the last 25 years. Jian's tenacity in finding every scrap available has gained him popular recognition as Generation X's number one investigator of one of the world's most famous phenomena topics, long established by the 1970s. Uncovering it for an entirely new generation, but now with actual documentation, instead of the endless hype and hyperbole of public marketing. He presents his research, as all facts must be presented, in a mature and objective manner. His website is www.Bermuda-Triangle.org. Don't forget the hyphen, my friends. Bermuda-Triangle.org. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November nineteenth, two 2008. Gian Part 2, talking about the Bermuda Triangle on BOA Audio, Season 4. Now, that sort of uh, actually is the perfect segue into the next sort of section I want to talk to you about, and that's uh, those who have lived through it. You have just an amazing chapter in the book about those who live to tell the tale. I guess before we sort of talk in specifics, how many roughly would you say people you've heard from or, or stories you've collected from people that, you know, seem to have been in the mix of the triangle phenomenon and managed to get out of it?
2: That I would consider very reliable, probably about 20 Okay. That, I, that I've talked about there's others, They're probably reliable. But I tried to limit myself to there were there were witnesses, more than one pilot, more than one person on the ship, when I put it into the book.
1: Based on that sort of stuff, well, What would you say, for starters, is the general you know trend or uh, you know series of events that sort of take place when the triangle experience, for lack of a better term, uh, begins or, or happens.
2: There will be a compass malfunction, the compass will be spinning, and there will be that dreaded electronic fog. I really, most everything is the fog or the compass. Something just goes wild with all the gear. There's power, but nothing's working. And then that fog develops, that grayish, unexplained fog, that Bruce Gernon called electronic fog. He coined the term, and he is a survivor. He's one of the most famous. He His first experience was on December 4, 1970, and he was even in one of Berlitz's old books. He knew Jay Manson Valentine personally. And he's been involved searching out the answer uh, to what happened to him, because it happened to him again in 1996 over the Keys.
1: Oh, wow. Two experiences.
2: Yes. And uh, <clears throat> other people. And so he 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 wrote the book with Rob McGregor called The Fog and... Uh, He's got his own new website now. I know him, Bruce, called not long ago. Tell me his new website is up. And he's probably someone you want to talk to sometime. Definitely. I investigate most of the incidents while he pursues really the solution to the fog. And so it's very interesting. He's a nice guy. And uh, he's a pilot. And his story is his. he insists that there was a time and space discrepancy in his case. And it's probably good to have him tell the story sometime. Because he can go into details. I have them all, but to recall them chronologically again. He did encounter, he was on flight from Andros Island to Miami, passing near Bimini. His dad was with him and a friend, I think Gus Lafayette or Chuck Lafayette. And uh, so it was near Bimini that he saw a strange lenticular cloud, and this thing began to form and go up and around and make a horseshoe. And finally he was enclosed in the cloud, and he, before completely enclosed, he flew out. a section of it, and that's when the funnel effect started around his aircraft. And he got the sense of forward gravity, and his compass was going crazy. And he was simply in a fog after that. And that's when all of his equipment was going crazy, nothing was working. And then finally, after some odd, I don't know how many seconds he can tell you, this fog dissipated in a spiral type of fashion. And he had a tower controller contacting him, saying something he was near they you know, we we'll see the aircraft near Miami. And he said, it's not even possible. He could only be near Bimini. And so he realized that he was over Miami Beach and he realized he was pushed forward about 30 minutes in time and 90 miles. Wow. He did gas, rece- he was so f- taken by all this. He checked his gas receipts and so forth and how much gas was in his tank. And he certainly said he could not have flown under normal conditions where he came out of that fog could not have been over Miami Beach. It was not possible. He didn't eat up the extra fuel or anything that would have been needed to get there. That's strange.
1: Now, this is sort of a really off the wall idea uh, that I had while I was reading the book regarding the electric fog. Please don't laugh at me. Um, (laughs) uh, Let's say you were, let's say you're like in a boat, right? You get the fog around you, Mhm um, and you're gonna you're gonna make it out okay. Is there any way you think you could capture some of that fog in a jar or something like that, or you think that's even possible? Don't uh, laugh at me, please <laughs> uh
2: there is sonic fog. you can't capture sonic fog either. Uh, we know sonic fog exists. a lot of meteorologists say electronic fog cannot exist, but if it is a condensation of the atmosphere caused by a unique electromagnetic A phenomenon, it would simply dissipate as the electromagnetic phenomenon dissipates.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I was figuring, but I didn't know. It's
2: it's like trying to capture stardust. Yeah. You're not going to do it.
1: Yeah, you'd have to actually, like, be, even if you were in the fog, uh, since it's like an electric fog, you couldn't even do any tests on the fog either, which is Mm -hmm. like uh, Catch-22.
2: It would just turn up to be condensation. Yeah. It's what causes it to stick to an aircraft. See, you're not flying through the fog. Bruce wanted to make this clear to people. This, it's not a fog bank. You think you are from within, but the fog, you're not flying through the fog. The fog is flying with you.
1: So it's like the fog envelops the craft and then... Simply moves with it. And that's how there he... There to
2: be some electromagnetic phenomenon with it allow, to allow it to remain attached to the aircraft or the ship. It's been seen around a boat before.
1: Okay, so we can't capture Lindberg, the fog.
2: Uh, Charles Lindbergh even reported it. Through the Bermuda Triangle? Yes, when he flew from Havana to Miami in 1927, 1929, something like that, he finally mentioned it in his Autobiography of Values in 1976. He said it was just gray. He was flying through this gray fog, and his his navigational equipment wouldn't work. And he came out of it finally 300 miles off course.
1: Bizarre. Yeah, I was very intrigued by the point that Bruce makes and that you make in the book that the fog sort of picks up the craft and and moves – with it instead of uh, that you're just flying through a fog.
2: Yeah, you think you are flying in a fog bank, but you're not. It's simply around you. Yeah. It has condensed around the aircraft.
1: Yeah, and as you've pointed out, too, uh, some of these experiences that people have had, apparently there's instrumentation and stuff that would have noted a a fog and stuff like that, and none of that stuff gets picked up, right?
2: Oh, yeah, and then there's – Like a weather uh, thing. Yeah, weather reporting stations also say it's clear. That happened in 2001 when uh, Gary Purvis, I believe was his name, he was playing tag with a Coast Guard interceptor Mm -hmm. for training purposes. He was off Marathon in the Florida Keys, and uh, there were some miles behind him where it was a Coast Guard uh, chopper. And uh, visibility was 12 miles. Marathon weather station confirms this. And suddenly, Purvis notes that uh, he's IMC, he's Instrument Meteorological Conditions, which means he has to fly by his instruments. He has no horizon. He can't see anything. And no one knew what he was talking about because it was perfectly clear weather. And then he's gone. He vanishes. Wow. Wreckage in this case was found, and they assumed that he lost control, became spatially disoriented, and crashed, which is probably very true. The thing is that the the Coast Guard interceptor said it was clear weather. Marathon reports the same thing. And Purvis was just fine until he reports his last words were, I am IMC, I am instrument meteorological conditions. Which, as I said, means he's now suddenly lost total visual sight of anything. He has to fly by his instruments. So he could have indeed encountered the electronic fog.
1: If the triangle phenomenon was simply just the electronic fog and then they got in the fog and then they crashed, there would be more wreckage and stuff like that. So it has to be... It has to be something additionally into that. You think this is a, a supposition I'm making?
2: It would it would differ in some cases. The fog is noted to be vortex type, where you can look straight down and see the ocean, mm-hmm. or look straight up and see the sky. But all around you, and your wingtips are within it, and it's around you, so it's like you're flying in the middle of a donut.
1: Yeah, but what so I mean, other things are involved? Yeah, sort of. What I mean is, like, uh, if it was just the circumstances of a mysterious fog envelops the craft.
2: Because the um, spatial disorientation, there should be more wreckage. Exactly, yeah. If it was just plain plane crashing. Yeah. That's why it's still a mystery. You know, some obviously, if some of these aircraft encountered the electronic fog that we don't know about, you know, they just disappeared, and we, well, we don't know what they encountered. So they could have encountered it and something else could have happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There certainly are uh, magnetic vortices out there. And so who knows what happens when all the charged particles that come from a, a, a solar storm, if they detect a magnetic vortex, they will swirl around it, and who knows what happens when an aircraft will hit something like that? It's a, it's a magnetic funnel basically.
1: Now you said that you have some incidents of people in, in ships and boats and stuff like that that have made it through the, the Triangle experience. I guess talk about you know one or two particularly compelling cases that you think people might be interested in as far as uh, you know survivors of the Triangle.
2: One, of course, is the famous Don Henry. Uh, he. Experienced his in 1966, in which the barge he was towing from Puerto Rico to Miami, uh, he was over the tongue of the ocean, which is a deep chasm within the Bahamas. And uh, the barge he was towing suddenly disappeared within a fog. The tow rope, he said, was sticking out like the old Indian rope trick, sticking out of the fog. Uh, Everything went bananas on the ship. The compass was spinning round and round. They couldn't get power to do anything, although they still had energy, nothing was working. It was draining batteries. They were all running back, going 8 pulling on this thing, on the tow line, and it was simply sticking out of a fog that enveloped the, the barge. So finally, after about seven, eight minutes of this, it subsided, they got all their power back, and he hit that thing in high gear and kept going. For quite a ways until I stopped, he went back and checked the barge out. It was much warmer than it should have been, he said. And he cannot explain what had happened, only that the barge did disappear in a strange fog that merely condensed around the barge. And it was just sucking all the power out of his uh, his tug, the good news. Uh, there was another incident in the Sportwater Bimini race where a man from Jackson was in a big race with all the guys going from Miami to Bimini. Mm, this was in the 1990s, and his all of his navigation equipment just flipped and was spinning and, and just didn't work. And he overshot Bimini. He got lost. And they finally found him and towed him into Bimini, and right when he got to Bimini, everything came back and worked properly. And he was even quoted in the newspaper. The Bermuda Triangle did a number on us. <laughs> One of the few times you've seen it quoted...
1: That raises an interesting question here. that I just wanted to ask you too. In addition to this sort of stuff, now I know. I, I presume back during the boom of the '70s and stuff, there was a lot of media coverage of disappearances and stuff like that. Is, mm-hmm. is there still? Is that still the case, or is it sort of, uh, sort of uh, not as talked about anymore? As far as you know, things that go disappearing in the Triangle.
2: No, I basically brought it out of the deep freeze. And so documentary TV will talk to me very frequently. I've been the subject, for I don't know how many, 20 to 25 documentaries. Oh, wow. Just from 2000 to today, so the last seven years or so. Uh, But you don't see articles. I wrote an article uh, for the Boy Scout magazine some years ago. They asked me to. But if something disappears, no one says uh, Bermuda Triangle in any serious way. It's just something of popular culture. Either people think it's it was solved by Kush 30 years ago, or by Gas, or that there is something to it, because there's this guy with a really weird name who seems to know a lot about it. And that's usually referring to me.
1: <laughs> what is, that's uh. A
2: weird name and the strange hobby.
1: <laughs> now, actually, I, I was going to ask you uh, about your name, but I didn't want to, uh. You know, have a silly fluff question. But since you brought it up, what are the origins of your name? It's quite an interesting name. I, I thought I would be talking to someone with an accent when I when I got a hold of you. I was surprised that you, you know I-,
2: I lost my accent. <laughs> <laughs> Gian is Italian for Jan, J A N. Clazar is French, I suppose. Okay. So. It's a strange name.
1: It's a good name. I like it. Is there more about the electric fog?
2: It, it's. I think it's really one of the most key. It, it's the the enigma of the triangle. Disappearances are one thing, you know, but it's those who live to tell that really add the most mystique to it because they're giving us something that is unusual. And electronic fog is one of those things. And the electro and the big enigma of the triangle, of course, is. The compasses will start spinning, that electronic drains occur. And so you really can't uh, talk about the electronic fog too much, but it's still all, you know, did it cause it? I think it is a, a major factor. The question is, what is causing the electronic fog? Yes. Touching on one point about is the triangle mentioned in any serious way, there was a lady pilot, and nice I say Carrie Trantham, who uh, experienced something very unusual uh, over the Bay of Florida when she was flying in the 1990s. She wrote an article of, she lost her horizon and everything, and so she, it has something to do with the electronic fog or one of the dead spots that are known to be out there mm-hmm. off of the Everglades City. And so she wrote an article for the AOP, the uh, Association of Air, of Pilots and so forth, their magazine. She entitled it, Surviving the Bermuda Triangle. And by God, they cut that title out and said, Surviving Get Home-itis. <laughs> saying that she was just tired, and this is what happens to a tired pilot. you experience this type of stuff.
1: Now, I know with uh, as far as UFOs go, that there's sort of a law, JNAP I think is the name of the law, you know, that prevents government and uh, maybe, mili- uh, maybe commercial pilots from discussing any UFO sightings. Is there anything like JNAP
2: 146? that? JNAP 146.
1: Yes, JNAP 146. Mm-hmm. Is there anything like that as far as the Bermuda Triangle goes, or is that included... Uh,
2: No, that wouldn't be included, and I know of no such official – there doesn't really need to be an official silence about it because NTSB is prevented from even putting a conclusion on something where they don't have, you know, the exact piece of evidence in front of them, and a disappearance obviously doesn't have that. So usually in a a disappearance, they simply conclude aircraft damage and injury index presumed.
0: Yeah, and that's it.
2: For military, the Air Force is uh, not obliged to release opinions or conclusions to their reports. They release narrative. They release a few other things. Uh, The Navy is bound by the same rule, but they often release everything, including social security numbers. I've had to redact those myself. So it's it's releasing of information is covered by various rules. There doesn't have to be a special one.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I figured that... uh much like UFO-type sightings, uh, it's probably the culture of ridicule probably keeps people anyway from reporting strange situations like that as it is.
2: But the NTSB has had some very frank stuff in it, like in, the, in a UFO case in 1980, when an aircraft vanished and the pilot was panicking, saying a weird object's interfering with his aircraft. The entire uh, air-to-ground transcript is in the uh, NTSB report.
1: Wow, that's, uh, that's a good release of information, then. You usually don't get that kind of stuff uh, from the government.
2: I have fourth-generation audio on my website. Wow. The sister of the passenger uh, had the tape, the FAA tape, and so she she had a copy of it, actually, and she gave me a copy yet again. And so I was able to get it on the web.
1: Nice. It's bermuda-triangle.org. Check that out for the sounds.
2: My website's been up since 1999, and it is the number one on the subject, so i People know where I am.
1: Yeah, or just punch in Bermuda Triangle uh, or your name in the Google, and it'll pop right up anyway, I'm sure. Mm -hmm.
2: No one has my name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We've really discussed at length here the Bermuda Triangle. Now, are there other areas in the world that are similar? I know you talk about Japan's Devil's Sea, and uh, I'm not sure. I recently read an article about uh, something around Taiwan, the Taiwan-Bermuda Triangle, if you will. Uh, I don't know if that's the same area or not.
2: Yes, yeah, it's, very, it's very close. To the South China Sea, it, it's all around there, the Dragon's Triangle, whatever they wish to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to get information, but an awful lot of piracy does go on over there, so I would suspect piracy for a lot of stuff first. Not as much aircraft fly in that area because there's really no place to fly to. Uh, so that's the rub. If there is a lot of the same stuff going on as in the Triangle, mm-hmm. there's really nothing that can record it for us because... The triangle phenomenon, of course, is recorded by people flying and sailing over it so much. Uh, so only the big, the big freighters, the big airliners and so forth are flying out there. And as such, we simply don't get as much information or cases to, uh, to investigate. But there have been uh, big, big vessels that vanished out there. Aircraft have vanished. Uh, there's been reports of uh, compasses going haywire. The area is also quite volcanic, too, so that can explain the compasses and the the magma under the sea and so forth. Mm -hmm. But there's not as much to talk about. I do talk about it somewhat in uh, in the book. It's on the exact opposite side of the world as the triangle, so that's interesting. Yvonne Saunderson tried to make a big deal about all these vile vortices around the world, and there really was no evidence for all that, and even his organization, C2, Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained admitted there really wasn't much evidence for a lot of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but uh, luckily you just, just ticked that point off on the list. Now, you also mentioned something about the Great Lakes being uh, an area of, of strange occurrences of Bermuda Triangle-esque disappearances. Yes, uh, a
2: lot disappears. Actually, the Great Lakes is the number two area in the world. And then off of um, Alaska and uh, Washington State, a lot go missing
1: interesting interesting we'll talk a little bit about the great lakes one cuz that's strange in in that it's a if you will like a landlocked body of water but there still seems to be you know strange disappearances going on there
2: a lot of aircraft actually i found out about the ntsb because of an old book in 1977 a paperback book called the great lakes triangle and this author had gone through the ntsb when i read his uh his uh bibliography. That's how I found out about them and started doing that for the Bermuda Triangle. So it's amazing. No one ever did that before me, even though this book goes back to 1977, because I guess Cush's book more or less destroyed the whole idea. And no one bothered to check with the actual documentation, and they would have found, you know, hundreds some odd disappearances that weren't in the books. But what I think the author's name was Jay Gourley or something like that. He wrote The Great Lakes Triangle. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot simply vanishes over the lakes. I don't investigate it really uh, carefully into the point-of-accident reports, but I do have the briefs, and so I can do, you know, the statistical. I know of other – there was a military disappearance that I investigated, which was quite peculiar. I had to deal with intercepting an unidentified object. That's a famous UFO case. It took off from Kinross Air Force Base, I believe. And the radar showed it merging with the object, and then the object going on on its own, and no more, no more aircraft. And I guess I was the first one to get the accident report from Maxwell Air Force Base, and they went out there and they even searched in the spring to see if this thing had been, you know, hidden under snow. They never found a trace of the aircraft. Huh. The way it came down, it it could have possibly been over land, and they went out and looked in the in the, the lake. Of course, what what are the Great Lakes about 800 feet deep at most?
1: Strange, yeah.
2: But statistically, I can say there are a lot of disappearances up there. It can be the bad weather; it does change suddenly. And it can be who knows what else.
1: Yeah, that is bizarre, and not equally bizarre that it that it hasn't reached a level of popularity that even the Triangle had or or you know still sort of has. And I'm surprised that it hasn't been picked up yet and and really delved into uh, since, as you said, the late 70s. That's kind of surprising. And now I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give you huge props here again on the book because you could have easily just put out the book with just the cases that you've picked up and, and, and you know detailing that, but a massive chunk of the book, the good second half of the book, is uh, really a clinic on all different sorts of areas and, and uh, possibilities for what may be causing the situation in the Bermuda Triangle. And uh, like I said, I read the book about, oh, right when it came out, because I heard you on Coast to Coast and got the book, and uh, and then I reread it this past week and was just amazed by the level of depth as far as the other subjects that you cover go. That sort of tangentially you tie sort of into the triangle.
2: Mm-hmm. Many of the series. What's well, all a part of the mythos? The triangle, as I said, is not just the disappearances, but the physical area and all the enigma of it, and what is could be involved with the disappearances.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, so I got to put you over for that, because like I said, you could have easily just put out a book on on the incidents and then just left it at that and been like, who knows? But I you know, actually did a really fantastic job of researching a lot of other areas that I would never have expected to be in a Bermuda Triangle book. That's why I'm telling folks they got to go pick this up because there's a whole lot of other stuff that we're going to get into now. These are going to be a little more uh, wide-ranging because uh, some of the areas are richly esoteric. But I want to talk about the Atlantic Ridge the potential for an Earth-wide disaster, which you date to approximately 4,000 BC, and what you think maybe might have happened there with uh, the splitting of this giant supercontinent. And uh, hopefully I've done justice to uh, what you put in the book.
2: Well, I, do I date it to 4,000, or am I using others? Uh, yeah, you, you I, I might. I would agree with uh, with something like that more recent time. Yeah, I think
1: I had 5,000 originally, and right. then I switched it to 4,000 because I wasn't sure exactly uh, the dating. but, but uh, I am
2: a catastrophist. So that would put me in a different geological, theoretical spectrum. Uniformitarianism used to dominate, and unfortunately, as uh, Dr. David Raup, a very distinguished paleontologist from the University of Chicago, still laments uniformitarianism, that 19th century idea, as he called it, can still be found in the popular press, uh, museums, some museum displays, and lower-level textbooks. And it was a a philosophy that... uh, basically dictated that as the weather functions today, so has it always functioned. And that's alone how we can explain mountains and canyons and so forth. The canyons were formed by, you know, the river over millions of years, and the mountains by slow tectonic action, you know, centimeter per centimeter, rising up. And so uniformitarianism could never accept a global cataclysm, because by, by Victorian standards they never saw one. Well, of course, today I guess almost everybody is a, ca- a catastrophist. They may argue about the dating of these things, but it's obvious that the Earth has been terribly shaken. Uh, and the mid-Atlantic Ridge is one evidence. Now, it's about, what, a 10,000-mile-long scar on the side of this planet, which cannot form naturally. There's no reason why a scar should form naturally on the planet. And it does conform to the, uh, the continental uh, shelves. You know You can see how... If you move the continents back toward the center of the Atlantic, you can see how the ridge is what split mega continent. Uh, and so, uh, if you, a, a cataclysmic force would have had to have done that. And this would have done, you know, happened rather quickly then. And so what could do that? Well, you know, an impact with the earth, a meteor or something could have jolted it enough to cause it to, or up like that, and then the mid-Atlantic ridge splits up, and that would have splitted megacontinent and started the continents moving rather quickly. And so the problem with uniformitarianism was that they, they believed that they uh, estimated 40, 50 years ago that the continents were moving away from the mid-Atlantic ridge mm-hmm. about two centimeters per year. And so, of course, uniformitarian mentality said, well, they were always moving two centimeters, so this happened 200 million years ago which is really not even a, a viable dating method. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I talked to one very esteemed scientist who said, you know, if they if that was an accurate measurement, they would have merely been measuring the continents coming to a stop because most everything is exponential. It starts quickly and slows to a stop. And so it would have been a cataclysmic splitting and the continents would have moved rather rapidly and then slowly come to a stop. So that how that relates to the triangle is, of course, with either explaining some of the evidence of civilized of city building that we can see under the water in the areas of the triangle, and more importantly, all the electromagnetic phenomena that could be related to tectonic stresses, magma, and so forth, because the area is really quite unstable. The Atlantic has I don't know how many volcanic seamounts, but there's thousands of earthquakes along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge every year.
1: Yeah, you sort of uh, you just touch on something I wanted to ask you about. That, uh... well, and what,
2: what's interesting is oh. that you have ancient civilizations records, Speaking about the splitting of the earth, about the earth tilting on its axis, about the stars disappearing over the horizon, and so you have actually a memory of such an event.
1: Yeah, and you touched on something just now that I did want to ask you about that I hadn't put in the notes, and that's uh, this, the Bimini Road, and the stuff that's been found around the Bimini area because mm-hmm. that's uh, integral to the triangle. It's, it, it's within the triangle, I presume and assume uh, if I, I think I'm right about that, and. Um,
2: hotbed of it.
1: Yeah, exactly, and when we're talking about, you know, the mysterious elements of the triangle, then all of a sudden you add in this mysterious lost culture that's underwater that they've just recently discovered, you know, within the last couple of generations, I guess you could say. Um, 1968. There you go. Talk a little bit about the Bimini Road and, and uh, what's been uncovered there, and, and what do you think about all that? Jay
2: Manson Valentine discovered that on Labor Day, 1968. And... uh it's controversy. It is man-made. There are people who will deny that. It is man-made. It does suggest the the old Inca type of, in pre-Inca type of construction of the huge polygonal blocks. And what it might have been, I don't know if it's a fallen wall. They call it the Bimini Wall or the Bimini Road, or a platform or a dock or something. The controversy is that they say Edgar Casey prophesied in 1933 and 1940 that this would be found. Well, not exactly. He, he prophesied that Bimini would, a uh, big temple or some kind of storage area would be found in the future off Bimini. That it was located there. This would give us all the information on this Atlantean super civilization that he believed in. Uh, that Atlantis was a great super civilization of prehistory. That they had flying machines and submarines and all sorts of energy uh, crystals and devices. And so this is how people who believe in that tie it in with the triangle, that there's all these remains of natural forces that the Atlanteans, according to Casey's Atlantis, tapped into, Mm -hmm. or Atlantean devices down there, crystals, which are causing the electromagnetic phenomena, or in certain cases even disintegrating an aircraft or a ship, or sending it into another dimension. So strangely, that's how it ties in. It, it is not Atlantis as we would consider it to be a Greek, the Greek legend of it, yeah. civilization in the Atlantic, but the super civilization of Cassian readings in the 30s. But in 1933, he does mention Bimini by name. That's something that something would be found there. And then in 1940, I believe he said uh, part of Atlantis would rise again uh, in 68 or 69, not so far away. And so they try and tie the two in together. Well, the two prophecies really aren't tied together, uh, but they try to say, well, J. Manson Valentine's discovery in 1968 of the Bimini Road is an exact fulfillment, but there really is no date, actually, for when something would be found off Bimini Okay. in the readings.
1: And one of the things I wanted to ask you about Bimini and the Bimini Road and all that, now you say uh, this was discovered in uh, 40 years ago. You'd think that, uh, like, 40 years later, that they'd be able to do a pretty thorough investigation of the area and maybe uncover some more stuff or, or, you know. There has been. And that's what I was going to ask you. What sort of stuff has been uncovered in the last 40 years in Bimini? Because all people ever seem to hear about is the Bimini Road Park.
2: There are other – the expert, the last expert that was recognized to be an expert (laughs) is Dr. David Zink. He's probably the one you'd want to talk about. He can get into details. He wrote the book, Stones of Atlantis. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh there are other structures they found, and that's where they can also uncover certain uh, electromagnetic anomalies. You know, when the compass points in the opposite direction. He even noted that in his book. And uh, there appears to be some kind of structure found off the east of Bimini. There's the mound on Bimini, the Cat Mound. There's a lot of stuff that indicates it is a prehistoric site.
1: Yeah. Now, they ever uncovered, you know, any people down there—not living, obviously—but any bodies or or any signs of the civilization outside of structures.
2: Uh, no, not to my knowledge. I mean, tools and so forth. Yeah. No, uh, there was a diver who claimed he found some power pole that was shooting out of, uh, radiation, but I don't know if that was ever proved. <laughs> Yeah, the Bimini Road actually does appear on the Piri Reis map.
1: Yes, yes, I. Uh, that's a good point that you do bring up in the book that the uh, the Bimini Road is on the on the infamous Piri Reis map. So,
2: and it shows it on land, so you know, there have been a lot of water changes. Bimini was probably just 500 years ago or so, a much larger island.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's a point you make also in the book. Is just how shallow a lot of the water is around those areas. Uh, and if, uh, if the sea level would drop a little bit, I'm sure a lot of that stuff would start to come to the surface, hopefully.
2: Yes, the whole Bahama Bank would be a huge island if the Atlantic was simply 50 feet lower. So the whole Bahama Bank, of which, you know, the island of New Providence where Nassau is, those would all just be hillocks on a huge island, the current islands, because that's how shallow the Great Bahama Bank is.
1: You do a lot of research into Atlantis and stuff like that. Now, do you tie this into the Bermuda Triangle just as a sort of, the supposition, the possibility, if you will, of, that yeah,
2: uh, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I personally don't believe in it myself. But I did. My book is basically the biography of the whole area as well, so this is intimately a part of the whole mythos and enigma. I don't really think Casey's Atlantis is causing ships and planes to disappear.
1: Talk a little bit about how the whole story of Atlantis and and the whole Atlantis mythos, as you say, ties into the triangle.
2: It's it's Casey's Atlantis once again. That is the Atlantis in view when it comes to the triangle. Uh, As I said, people use it as uh, trying to say, well, you know, the power sources are down there or the natural uh, uh, power that these man-made devices were uh, designed to tap into are still down there and these are making ships and aircraft disappear or getting them lost by affecting the electromagnetic field. Others use it to explain UFOs and USOs that they are coming back to an ancient civilization uh, that is now destroyed. And so they are still working off of old power sources or they're investigating what happened to the civilization that sent them up to other planets in the the background. So the argument would be that, well, this is the main base for UFOs and and USOs around the whole world. This is where they're really stationed and that they are people like us. They're They're Earthmen coming back or descendants of those who went. To the stars from thousands of years ago, and now they've come back to their mother planet, and they're finding it, of course, obviously drastically changed. Yeah. So that's how they tie it into the disappearances with UFOs and with power sources. It's quite more esoteric.
1: Exactly. Well, like I said, you could pull a chapter right out of the book, and it would be like... Uh just a treatise on a whole different area of the esoteric that really you'd be surprised had anything to do with the triangle, which is why I really enjoyed the book so much. And and one of those sections in the book that I was really surprised that you got into was the whole Martian and, and lunar anomalies. I guess talk a little bit about that and, and sort of what made you interested in, in, in that aspect of the story and, and how that might be related to the triangle phenomenon.
2: How did I tie that in? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, that's people, uh, the Martian, the lunar anomalies are not so interesting as the Martian ones, that big worm mm-hmm. on Mars and and other things. Uh, so it's more or less an indication of ancient civilization, some reaching out. You know, we, we view them today as can, are these stepping stones from beings from another planet coming to Earth? But why would not view them in the opposite, that these could have been built by a prehistoric super civilization so many of our earliest civilizations speak of a, you know a, a golden age a time of the gods and so forth and then great upheaval which we can tell just by looking at the earth great upheaval has happened people may argue about the time period but now catastrophism is quite popular and really can't be denied from what you know what we can see in all the geological structures so could there have been a prehistoric civilization that actually like us has reached out has left markers on the moon, on Mars, and then going out, and that indeed uh, could they not be coming back.
1: Yeah, that sort of raises a question I was going to ask you, and I'm sure you don't have the answer, but uh, which came first, the humans or the lunar Mars anomalies? Uh, let's presume they exist. Were they created by space-faring early humans, or were they created by ancient astronauts on their way here? I guess, you know, what's your, what's your take on that whole idea?
2: If they're real, I would opt... That we did it at some ancient time because they're actually, you know, they can be viewed from the earth. So that kind of indicates the center of where they're supposed to be viewed from. If we can come up with the space problem of travel, one can say that people came from others, you know, and try and explain what the old biblical uh, statement of the sons of God coming down, uh, which some people try and say that's preserving uh, men from other planets coming here in Genesis. So you can you can interpret it either way. I say if they are real, then we did it uh, thousands, one thousands of years ago. Okay. It's like any stepping stone. You know, which way are you supposed to go? In a row of stepping stones, which way is the right way and the wrong way to go? Mm-hmm. Whatever direction you're going.
1: <laughs> exactly, and and in the book also talking about these uh, potentially technologically advanced ancient races, you talk a lot about the Vamanas, which is really cool because you don't see, I haven't seen too much work and look into the Vamanas, Uh, I got to do a little more research of my own into that, but I guess just talk a little bit about the Vamanas because you really do detail them quite a bit and into the Bermuda Triangle.
2: What's interesting about them, which they're supposed to be the flying machines of ancient India, of Sanskrit writings. What's interesting is the detail to which the ancient writers went to try and describe how these things flew and what their energy source was. All this is, of course, nothing to do with any basic religious precept. You know, it's more of an epic, uh, it's like an ancient sci-fi epic. And yet it purports to be true that they were flown by some type of mercury propulsion, that they could explode, they could fly in the air, you could intercept, and so forth, and it could be pure fantasy, but if so, why is so much time devoted to how these things worked, how you could store and take care of them in a hangar, and how fast they could travel and where they could travel, and the how-to of operation? I mean, it, it's you know you don't see any of that in the old Persian and Arabic stories of the flying carpet. You know, in fantasy, the carpet simply flew by magic. But here's all these accounts of these ancient flying machines of a civilization before the Aryans and so forth. Uh, came to India, and all this amount of time and and pages, certainly paper, was very rare. It was only used for the most important things uh, to be written down, and all this time is devoted to uh, these flying machines and these uh, weapons of destruction. So it seems more or less almost like a scientific treatise sometimes instead of just some fantasy or ancient epic.
1: Yeah, and uh, you point out in the book that the richly detailed work of, of covering the Vermanas Uh, by the ancient Indians and stuff like that suggests that they may have actually been spacefaring craft. From
2: some of the descriptions they speak of wars, you know, between the gods out in space and men and so forth. Then descriptions of takeoffs, like jets taking, uh, rockets taking off and seeing how the Earth is telescoping behind them. So there's stuff that again can be fantasy, but it's amazing how accurate it is. Uh, Discussing, you know, flight uh, into the atmosphere and what is it in the Ramayana Rama is speaking about how why they see the stars during the day because they've come up so high that you know the sun does not it, it's it's a statement saying that they're above the atmosphere now and that's why they see this circle of stars even in the daytime, which is true of course when you're in space you don't the you're beyond the atmosphere so you don't see the blue sky you simply see stars
1: It seems like this idea of an ancient technological advanced civilization it seems like the ideas been picking up quite a bit, you know, uh, in the past, you know, let's say 30, 40 years or whatever, but at the same time, it's still part of the esoteric, and, and obviously the mainstream science hasn't uh, even looked at it in the way that uh, it should. I guess the question is, why do you think that is? Is it a cover-up, or is it more just a situation where people are afraid to go against the grain of... Established uh, anthropology and all the various sciences that discuss pretty probably the latter
2: it's probably the latter. I'm not a big conspiracy theorist because that implies that uh, people who are involved in conspiracy know what they're doing <laughs> and the government usually doesn't and the establishment uh, it's probably just fear of you know uh, walking outside and then of course you know they all work for institutions that are not who get grants to come up with very tangible and profitable things and an academic search into uh, ancient astronauts is certainly not going to bring in any grant. Yeah. Eric von Däniken, although he's been ridiculed so many times, is still standing room only whenever you go to hear him. And he admits how he screwed up on a number of things. You know, and he can't believe he said some things that he did, but he still believes that there is evidence for ancient astronauts. And then there was, who was it, Temple was his name, who wrote the uh, the Sirius history, a serious connection, about mm-hmm. how the Dogon yeah. have all this uh, ancient knowledge, uh, uh, astronomical knowledge, and they attribute it to people
1: from another planet.
2: We're investigating a crime that happened here yesterday. Triangle took someone else, didn't it? Yes,
1: yes. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Triangle strikes again. Do you think uh, that we'll reach some kind of breakthrough as far as that idea of an ancient, advanced technological civilization is concerned, or do you think uh, you know, if we're going we need go to, Mars, to it?
2: If we go to Mars and they actually stumble upon what is clearly intelligent design uh, material, you know, uh, great tubes or dwellings, they're going to have to explain something like that. So if on Mars, why not here? And then, of course, you're going to have so much stuff coming up and everything is going to be looked upon as some evidence of ancient astronauts, even when it wasn't. But that'll be where we're supposed to get to Mars in 2020?
1: Something like that, yeah.
2: So if they find, if, you know, if they know where those anomalies are, you think they would finally send something when we send another probe and have it land by the the worms or, or something? Mm-hmm.
1: So you think that would be the breakthrough that would sort of change the paradigm?
2: Yes, because I think some people have used religion as an excuse for trying to keep that quite I don't know why why someone would think that no religion says there can't be you know, that we could not have been advanced at one point. Actually that's implied in almost all the ancient religions. That we were advanced enough to, to know flight and, and more. So I don't know why people always said, Oh, it's just a closed minded establishment that doesn't wanna it was uniformitarianism, if you want to get back to that. It was just that Victorian progress theory that we we're constantly progressing with time, that's natural that we should do so. And so if, you know, uh, the Victorian gentleman was as he was, well, someone 2,000 years ago had to be far more primitive. Yeah. And then 4,000 years ago had to be even more primitive. And we've more or less shed the progress theory today. So I think basically people are going to think that maybe at one point there was a super civilization or certainly man was far more advanced, which we do know that now. We, knew, we do know that the Egyptians probably did understand electricity, maybe even light bulbs. And uh, they, they had toothpaste and everything. We even have a formula for their toothpaste. Oh, wow. And modern toothpaste is, uh, companies have actually stumbled upon something similar before we even discovered that. It's something to cause uh, it really pecks the gums well. And it comes from some plant, some flower they were using. And then when they found that old papyrus that had this recipe on the back, it had that ingredient in it, so the Egyptians were very clever when it came to toothpaste.
0: <laughs>
2: they were, you know, the ancients, we view them as, you know, I guess, I don't know, certainly not as adept at cleanliness as us when actually they're very they're very hygienic
1: interesting that is uh strange and um one of the interesting points uh that you bring up to sort of uh add credence and strength to your research into the worldwide catastrophe is the, the population problem as you as you call it or it might have been named that by somebody else and that's just by that,
2: somebody else yeah the population population equation
1: yeah yeah i guess talk a little bit about that as as a as an indicator of a worldwide disaster.
2: Yeah, if you go back, they know how a population to double around the Earth. We have a pretty good estimate of the uh, population of the Roman Empire. It's it's believed that Rome was a city of a million people, and the empire had about 100 million. You've taken all the other peoples of the world at that time, maybe there was 300 million people, or a bit more, you know. Mm Uh, Why it did not double in the appropriate period of time? Well, you know how the Middle Ages were just so dreadful, and then the Khan was butchering everybody, and so the world was really uh, subject to a lot of diseases, the bubonic plague wiped out Rome at one point, the Roman Empire. Uh, But by sixteen, oh, I forget what it is, sixteen hundred and something, they really came up with a good estimate of the population of the world. And the doubling estimate has proven accurate. The population of the Earth has doubled. Oh, I can't give you the exact time zone. From, what was it, 600 some odd million in the 1600s, and then they estimated 1.2 billion in the 1800s, and then from there to uh, something in 1950, was it? it, would be 2 point something billion, and then in, in 1988 would be 5 billion, and of course we far that out. What is the population of the Earth now? Is it over 6 billion?
1: Something like that, yeah.
2: And so it's proven quite accurate. And if you go back and extrapolate this backward, well, you come up with zero around, what, 3300 BC? Mm-hmm. So if mankind was on the Earth for as long as they say and as of the equal intelligence, as they say, now, well, now they've pushed us back. Even the most conservative in the slightly uniformitarian mentality say, oh, well, you know, man has been just as intelligent now for hundreds of thousands of years. They've gotten rid of Homo erectus. They've gotten rid of Neanderthal. They were just all variations of, of normal human beings. And so that, what, 700,000 years ago, they say man was just as intelligent. Well, if so, why aren't there billions and billions more of us now? If we've been breeding like this for the last you know couple thousand years, we've reached from 300 million to 6 billion. Well, where, where are the billions more people, unless you know many billions were killed in a huge catastrophe. Yeah, and it's if that if you know, and it seems to pinpoint it around the third century B.C., where so much other written sources speak about a great cataclysm, great flood, great splitting of the earth. Yeah, Even the Mayan calendar goes back and stops around three thousand one hundred and fourteen B.C.
1: Yeah, all sources seem to trace back to that time period. So it's uh, it's definitely very compelling stuff now. One of the cool parts about the book, too, is that you spend a long time uh, before you get to the dreaded three-letter word UFO. Um, <laughs> and then,
2: Uncooperative federal officer.
1: What's that? Uncooperative federal officer. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to use that. And, and so I did like that because, uh, you know, uh, you'd think if you, if you handed the book to a layperson, I'm sure they would expect to find a complete treatise on UFOs within the first five pages, but it's not like that at all. For starters, how prevalent are UFO reports in the Triangle?
2: And limiting myself to inference or direct statements, I could only find a couple of cases mentioning it. And that was one, the incident 1980 I mentioned to you. The actual report speaks of the pilot having this problem with a weird object, as he called it. Mm-hmm. A luminous object. Uh, then in 1971, a Phantom II disappeared, and other Phantom Twos went to the site where they thought was the impact, and they saw... It's called water discoloration in the report, and then the next paragraph's hacked out or something. But the pilot's described as 100 oblong, 100 feet wide by 200 feet long. The north axis, I believe, was above water. The south axis was below water. And, well, what was it? I don't know, but the steadfast Coast Guard Cutter Steadfast, which was only five nautical miles distant, came to that site, and it was gone by that time. So are they trying to say it's an oil slick that was above and below the water? They searched in that area with sonar and couldn't find the aircraft at all on the bottom. And, of course, you cannot find what the clarification is because that's an opinion or an interview, and the Air Force won't release that. So I merely have the statement of the pilots talking about flying over an area that was 100 by 200 feet oblong, uh, north-south direction, and part of it was above and part of it was below the water. Aside from that, there are witnesses who speak about things, strange things, but it's not associated with the disappearance. Bruce Gernan has seen that on occasion.
1: Yeah, that's that's the other thing. Uh, I was going to ask you, what about people who've made it through the triangle? How prevalent UFO sightings involve with those folks?
2: Uh, there's been a number about stars they thought was a star and then detaching and coming closer, and they realized it was uh, a craft of some kind. That's I think I mentioned quite a few cases. Uh, there have been others I could not verify, so I did not mention them. But it's usually very... Uh, Very nebulous. Uh, The the best thing I ever found was uh, the incident in 1980 off Cabo Cabo Rojo. And then you find out that Timothy Good did an awful lot of research and talked to people in that area in one of his books. And he didn't know about this case, the disappearance in 1980. I'm the one who found it in the NTSB files in 1991. And so he discusses how UFOs are seen off this area of Puerto Rico quite frequently. Going back to the 1960s and 70s, so that's an interesting connection with the 1980 incident. And uh, I think he even quotes Federico Cruz, was that the civil air director of I forget one of the, the towns on uh, the west coast of Puerto Rico, who says these are seen frequently coming and going from, from from the water, from the bay, from the lagoon, or whatever, to the sky and so forth. These objects,
1: huh. based on you know your perspective and research into this uh do you think there is a ufo connection to the triangle or do you think it's something else
2: i don't really know if i i can't encounter uh, uncover too much even in the you know a lot of the what could have happened to these these aircraft that's simply the standard case you know as i said they simply go out and they vanish and you never see them again so anything could have happened to them but if you establish it in one case it's certainly possible in others and we know that certainly is the claim that the pilot used in 1980 when he's panicking about this weird object. So, And he did disappear. That aircraft vanished off Atlantic Weapons Radar. And so it definitely has happened. That is a weird object. That means it's unidentified, and that aircraft certainly vanished.
1: Popular notion, I guess you could say, about these disappearing ships and planes is that uh, they're not like disappearing and they're destroyed, but they're disappearing and they're going somewhere. What have you uncovered as far as, you know, suggestions that that might be the case, that that there's some kind of, you know, anomalous situation where they're being sent someplace else, if you will?
2: I'd have to deal with time and so forth and the possibility that those magnetic vortices, I mentioned what Wilbert Smith called them, areas of reduced binding. And it's thought that they're magnetic vortices coming up from the core of the planet. They can be a 1,000 feet in diameter. And so if the magnetic field is spinning at this is a magnetic matrix, can it bend time enough? We know time is slowed uh, by gravity. Uh, so if we have uh, an artificial, well, not can't say artificial, if we have an unexplained magnetic field, Could it could it bend time? Could it bend space? Could it send a craft somewhere else? Could it hold it in time? All that's tied in with the electromagnetic phenomenon that we do know exists, but we do know that time is affected by by gravity. And so if it is, if even if it's a natural phenomenon, magnetic vortices is in this special area or something else, could these aircraft either, as Wilbert Smith speculated, disintegrate? Or could they be sent up with less gravity? So are they suddenly just surged upward into the atmosphere? Or something else happened? Are they suddenly sent in time someplace i mean it all connects but you know you'd have to see it happen to prove it (laughs) exactly yeah
1: yeah and i don't know if you want to be the one (laughs) experiencing it and
2: electromagnetism is a key part of the mythos of the triangle and we know that that is definitely related to time
1: it's strange how the idea of them going somewhere has become such a part of the fabric of the story when that's just a supposition do you know what i mean it's like we don't know like you said we we don't know for sure. We'll never really know. Yeah. But it's
2: disappearance. It's its not destruction. It is disappearance. They should not be missing. Freighters, 500-foot freighters should not vanish. Airliners should not disappear while coming in for a landing. Uh, they should not disappear in the twinkling of an eye, and that has occurred in 1974. Also, at St. Thomas, when a luggage flight was coming in and a print air was behind it, and the luggage flight was in the flight circle coming in, it was seven twenty-seven. It was cleared to land St. Thomas, and it simply disappeared. And the two pilots in the print air behind it uh, even looked at the ocean to see if it impacted, and they saw no evidence. The aircraft had simply vanished as they looked elsewhere for a moment.
1: It's just puzzling, and uh, I hate to invoke the, and I don't know who said it, but something about time travelers, and they said, you know, if if there is time travel, then where are the time travelers? We haven't, obviously, we have no incidents of Anything coming out of the vortex to come here, right?
2: Unless you assume UFOs travel that way. If they're real and you think that there's a galactic or a solar magnetic opposite as there is on Earth, there certainly is a magnetic opposition here where I think I mentioned that we discovered that with the atomic bomb drops. Mm -hmm. When they were dropped in the northern hemisphere instead of all this aurora and coronal and so forth phenomena occurring there, it occurred in the exact magnetic opposite in the southern hemisphere and so that the phenomenon, the magnetic lines obviously transmitted the phenomenon and then it occurred at the exact opposite location. So if that can happen, if if energy and reactions can transmit along magnetic field lines, can we finally make matter do that? Project Magnet, actually Wilbert Smith was in charge of Project Magnet and they were looking for areas of magnetic anomaly to see if they couldn't tap into energy more easily that way And they found a lot of it in the triangle areas. It was more common in the tropics. Interesting.
1: Now, is there any way to really, like, study the Bermuda Triangle, or is it kind of like fishing where you just have to keep going out there and hoping for something to happen?
2: I guess you just have to keep going out there and looking for something to happen. The only study, comprehensive study, has been me, and that's been cataloging all this stuff since I was the first one since Jay Manson Valentine did a lot of it. And uh, if you want to actually be a witness – then you have to go out there and you have to understand what you're seeing. And I, I think in the long run, if you survive it, you'll come back and just be another another story saying, I saw the fog. You know, I saw this and that happen. But we still can't say what's doing it. You have to encounter it for yourself.
1: Yeah, and chances are. And then are, it may be too late. Yeah, exactly. Chances are if you do encounter it, you don't, you know, you're shit out of luck. <laughs> now, you do raise an optimistic kind of point, too, in the book that – as far as the triangle is concerned, that searching for these answers could eventually lead us to much greater uh, discoveries, in a sense, as far as zero-point energy and that kind of stuff. So I guess talk a little bit about what what sort of positive thing might come out of our understanding of the triangle.
2: Well certainly something positive. All these, you know, ships and aircraft did vanish. It has certainly led us to consider many things of electromagnetism in time. I certainly learned an awful lot. And that is the future of energy, uh, electromagnetic energy, not fossil fuel. Uh, so I think something very positive, these people didn't give their lives. If so, they're all dead. Without any purpose, we've learned about far more deeper things in the fabric and the blueprint of how this whole planet is designed. I mean, just magnetic opposition is fascinating on its own. And uh, this leads us to greater to greater pathways uh, for travel, energy. And so I don't think they, they necessarily died in vain or vanished in vain. They're just it's, – it's showing us the greater design that we are, are amongst. You know, the, the, we just look at the tangible, the tangible, physical, but all the energy fields that are associated with matter are amazing. And they are all through us, you know, the, all the waves, the electronic waves and uh, everything we use. And it's far more interesting, actually, than the physical matter we see.
1: Absolutely, that's for sure. One point here that I did uh, want to ask you about or bring up that sort of jumps back a little earlier in our discussion that was uh, the Hutchinson effect and how he had reported some fog like situation that sounds eerily similar to the Bermuda Triangle fog. I guess talk a little bit about that fog correlation because that may be sort of uh, an area that, that could unearth more answers.
2: Yeah, he did that during high. Uh High electric, what was it, high voltage electric tests, and uh, fog materialized in his uh, laboratory. He said it was gray and metallic, and he couldn't see through it, so it was definitely there. And so it did go hand in hand. And again, that indi- with the electronic fog in the triangle reported by so many from Lindbergh to modern pilots, it does indicate again a greater electromagnetic phenomenon is occurring. And with that, you know, all the potential that's involved with gravity and electromagnetism.
1: Now, based on what we know from what how Hutchinson has conjured up the fog, what do you think is causing the fog in the triangle if it's a, an electrical situation? I don't, I'm a little confused just in general about how electricity's hanging around by the water like that. Do you know what I mean?
2: Oh, the, the conduction in the atmosphere above water like that. Uh, you could have uh, charged particles entering the Earth. You could have those magnetic vortices. You could have these all uh, coming together at one point. uh, Charged particles will detect the magnetic field lines of force and spiral around them. This phenomenon is seen uh, when these charged particles after a solar storm, magnetic storm, send far enough to charge stratus clouds or something. And then you see the clouds forming these long corkscrews. And that's actually because the charged particles within the clouds are spiraling around the magnetic field lines of force from the north and south pole. And uh, there's any number of combinations of electromagnetic phenomenon, uh, of charged particles and so forth, and magnetic vortices that can come together and cause all sorts of havoc uh, over the ocean especially.
1: And do you think, like, the presence of a ship or a plane could sort of throw that out of whack and then cause something like that? Yeah,
2: conduct somehow, act as some kind of conduction uh, the boats have zinks. Uh, you know, aircraft have leech lines to get rid of the static charge. But we're talking obviously about a matrix of energy that is swirling, and I don't think a zinc or our leech line, a static line, it can compensate for that. And so that uh, our our craft are not designed really to repel such electrical charges as might come from a swirling magnetic field.
1: Now, at the end of the day, at the end of all this research that you've done into the triangle. What's your best guess or best, you know, theory on what really is going on there in the Bermuda Triangle? Do you have sort of a a pet theory or preferred idea of what might be the case?
2: My preferred idea is the electromagnetism involved with the vortices and charged particles. Uh, And then probably several factors. We don't know the location, of course. As I said, there is the continental shelf phenomenon. But it it has to do, I'm very certain, with electromagnetic uh, anomalies. That electronic fog, I think, is more or less conclusive of that. That could not materialize otherwise.
1: And if that's the case, then uh, what would become of these ships and planes that are, fell victim to it?
2: That opens up any number of potentials <laughs> destructions, <laughs> disintegration, getting lost. Who knows? Whatever a, a, a swirling magnetic field is capable of. Okay. Even losing gravity. We know that. Interesting shielding gravity at any rate
1: and you, and so then you discount the idea of ufo abductions and that kind of thing that 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 might not be the case
2: i as i say only have that one real case and all that I, i've studied it might be happening but i'd have to know how and why you know it it certainly did happen in 1980 but what was that luminous object in yeah fact, it comes down to that again it was technically an unidentified flying object but what was it
1: And there's always the chance that, you know, that that could be a a one-off completely unrelated to the actual triangle phenomenon case. Do you know what I mean?
2: Well, in the long run, it's going to be multifactorial anyway. You know, so many aircraft and ships, I'm sure they've vanished for for different reasons. You know, but the majority, I think, probably could have encountered something very electromagnetic. The pilots were not, uh, shipmasters were not capable of dealing with. They weren't aware, you know, they were not understanding what was going on.
1: Now would these sort of events only affect craft that that had electricity on, like had electrical equipment on them and stuff like that? Well, I guess most things are, but but if like if a canoe so, was in the middle of that sort of thing, would they be all metal. affected too?
2: There's metal in everything, so there's an incident that the New York Times reported, and I was given a copy of it recently about a ship that went in the eight in 1904 something that it, it encountered some lenticular thing like Bruce Kernan. Actually, he gave it to me. And they were guys, their hair was standing on end, they were encountering so much static electricity, they were suddenly heavy with weight and forced onto the deck. And so that's from the New York Times in 1904, I think. So you don't have to have an all-metal ship. Uh, if something electromagnetic is generating, it, it, well, obviously they were encountering some kind of static electrical charge as well if their hair was standing on end.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I should
2: send you that article.
1: Yes, definitely. Send it to me. We'll uh, we'll link up to it if you want, if it's at your site, or or uh, we'll.
2: I have it in email here somewhere to download.
1: A nice, definitely pass it along to me. And then uh, just to sort of wrap it all up here, I've talked about the triangle here numerous times on the program with other guests, in the vein that uh, when I was growing up, I remember those old Time Life mystery commercials and stuff like that and it seemed like the Bermuda Triangle was one of the big daddies of the paranormal world. It was uh Absolutely. It was just one of the just absolute ten poles of the whole genre of, of uh, you know high strangeness. But now in the last couple decades, with the exception of obviously your outstanding book, it's completely fallen off the radar of Esoterica. What is the cause of that do you think?
2: The belief that it was solved. I think people believe Cush really solved it. No one did any research through the uh, late 70s, 80s, and 90s, but me and I was very quiet about my research until I started putting it on the web until 1999. And uh, that's when it started to come out of the deep freeze, and there's still people who believe it's completely completely solved, despite what my website has, four and a half million hits. I don't know how well my book sold. I can't remember all the count, but it did quite well by publishing standards. Uh, So it's, it's... Fodder for the documentaries. They weren't really making them that much, until I got on the web, and then they they knew my reputation in the media. So I got hit with so many offers, and so that brought it back out. But it would, it went in the can. It was not uh, you know the the unexplained was not popular in the 1980s. That was the the yuppie file decade, whereas big city centricity, what you who you were instead of what you were, how you dressed, what restaurants you went to. Yeah. It wasn't inquire, it wasn't the open mind of the anti-establishment movement anymore. And so it, it did, uh, it, it takes a lot of research. You just cannot speculate about it blindly. It's just not a subjective thing. You have to, I broke my back for years getting all the documents. It cost a fortune and it cost a lot of travel. And so it's really only Bruce and I who investigate. So it's not something that you can really only well, a few of us can talk about it in detail. You know, everybody should talk about it if they want. Of course, I'm glad that people are. But as to really trying to generate more interest, you have to know all the cases. There's really only a couple of us who talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, that it was a genre that died out for a while. But thankfully, like you said, it was. Uh, it's coming out of the deep freeze now with your stuff and with Bruce's research. And, and uh, that's what we need because... Like I said, I've gotten a lot of requests to do Bermuda Triangle episodes, so I'm excited that we got a chance to talk to you here. Just one sort of last general question. What's the attitude of the people who live, you know, near the Bermuda Triangle or in the area, you know, Bermudans and and people on the islands and stuff like that? Are they sort of big believers in it or, or, you know, because in some cultures, uh, there's more openness and acceptance of the paranormal, especially when it's in their own backyard. Is that sort of the situation down there or are they more passe about it?
2: probably both uh you know you live with it, you gotta accept it, but it it's something I think that's gonna be like any like some kind of national legend or something it gets protected at one point, like the Greeks still think of the old legends of the gods and so forth. there's always gonna be a natural natural desire to you know protect the mythos because it's part of the area it adds excitement for some people, so i don't uh I don't think they're gonna debunk it necessarily some people might spread some tall tales but uh, it's it's something that is going to be a part of the local culture
1: all right and i had uh, one more question here for you and that's uh some elements of the triangle some areas i guess you could say there's land there do you know what i mean like uh-huh. the area of the triangle goes over land is there a higher incidence of strangeness in the areas that are land-based areas i guess you'd say or on, on land that's within the triangle
2: what do you mean, disappearances?
1: Disappearances, disappearances. or anything out of the ordinary, I guess you could say.
2: I have only one case of a disappearance over land, so that would really be it. I think that was nineteen ninety four in southern Florida, and it wasn't over the Everglades. It was actually seen <clears throat> over town. I forget what town. It's in the book, I think. The it was at night, so the lights were seen of the aircraft, and uh, it was never seen again.
1: Strange. So only, but only one overland uh, incident. Yes. What about uh like strange just not so much disappearances but just high strangeness uh on areas and that are land based in that area? do you know what I mean that's kind of a confusing question, but
2: no, unless I'm visiting there's no high strangeness,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you think it's more of like a... it it's more ties into the ocean and air situation there some kind of strange combination between the ocean and the air and
2: uh-huh. the electronic fog will even dissipate if you're over sea over ocean and aircraft, and then you fly over land. Some kind of temperature change, Bruce thinks.
1: Interesting, interesting. Okay.
2: Or vice versa. If it, if it conducts over land, it might dissipate over the ocean.
1: Okay. You've talked about uh, that you wrote a Flight 19 manuscript and also a, a USS Cyclops manuscript. What's, mm-hmm. what's coming up next for you? What can we expect from Giancasar? I know this book came out about four or five years ago. Uh, I thought I heard a rumor that you were investigating Bigfoot, but that might have been just a rumor. So
2: No, it's not a rumor. That's been a long, long time. I've been doing that almost as long as the triangle, but something that's a little more quiet. It's not what I'm known for, but really? I am coming out with a book, Recasting Bigfoot. And I love the title. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always like my titles, but Recasting Bigfoot, you can tell the play on words. And uh, it's going to be quite different from everything else. I did a lot of investigating into the old Indian legends. And so it blows a lot of the bull away, but it establishes a lot of things that are really fundamental that used to be part of the, the old animal-human stories of the 19th century. And indeed, the Indians themselves insisted the Choch the Sasquasweka, how they called them, were in fact people. They said they were two tribes. Who were constantly at war with each other. That's what reduced their nuisance value to people, but they insisted that they were indeed human beings, and they were six and a half feet tall. And that, where you know, it's interesting how they suddenly grew to be eight or nine feet tall in white man's hands. The Indians were always very frank. That Sasquatch men were six and a half
1: feet tall, but twice the thickness of an ordinary man. Wow! Now, when can we expect this Bigfoot book to be coming out? It
2: should have been out already, but then the publishing house editor got downsized, and it was canceled there, so I'm still going to go shop it around. So uh, hopefully in a year or so. I wanted it out for the 50th anniversary here, October 6th, but it was not possible. And I'm switching agents, but recasting Bigfoot is actually done. I do have some information on my site, but not much. I I don't really want much up. I'm going to redesign the site soon anyway. But it it has an awful lot of information starting with the 1800s and even uh, South American reports, because I will make a link between uh, South American legends about uh, such a thing and footprints up here that seem to jive that indeed one of the two species, quote-unquote, came up from South America. Bigfoot is indeed a Native American. Interesting. He's He's not an import from the... The Skookum, at least. I would say the Skookum and the Sasquatch are different. The Skookum is indeed a Native American.
1: Now, I, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you more about this. I don't want to get into in, in too much to it, but what, what? give me a teaser here, I guess you'd say, of uh, what, what sort of information do you blow out of the water here?
2: I blow away the Gigantopithecus. I blow away all the... Uh, all this stuff about the subhuman missing link that some people like to bring up. I blow away the whole idea of a pointed head. I do dispose, like so many others now, I do dispose of the Patterson film. I don't believe in that.
1: Really? uh uh-uh. well, no. Can I ask you about that? Why do you dis—why do you dis- disagree with the Patterson film? Cause I've I heard got of- a frame of it and blew it up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm afraid I got too much in the frame. And also what's what, more interesting is that uh, the Indians an old frontier account.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like very plain what the footprint is like of the Sasquatch man. And I'm afraid Patterson's creature did not have that kind of foot.
1: This is in- intriguing stuff. You got to hurry up and get this book out because if it's anything like into the Bermuda Triangle, it's going to be a masterpiece. Thank you very much. Just one more thing here about the Bigfoot. What about the whole paranormal element? Have you looked at I'm sure you looked into that. So what what do you take what do you take on the paranormal Bigfoot theories?
2: I I'm not into that. No, I I've, I think I've pretty much been able to dog ear where the two species come from, and it's it's something that uh, one w- even got shot at one point there and photographed a close relative. Really, Mm-hmm. it's not well known. And the Indian masks of the wild man of the woods of uh, the Sasquatcha, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, they have a telltale. Telltale clue in them that gives away the species.
1: Interesting. Well, we'll save that for the book because uh, <laughs> we want people to check that out. No ETA on on recasting Bigfoot, then I guess.
2: No, not right now. I have to. am switching agents
1: too, so I'll have to ask. <laughs> All right. Well, you need to send me that information A- ASAP as soon as you as soon as you know, because I definitely am I'm frothing at the mouth here. Uh, about this Bigfoot book, uh, especially after reading into the Bermuda Triangle. I want to see what you've uncovered with Bigfoot. What about the Flight 19 and the USS Cyclops books? When can we expect Probably those? Probably around to...
2: the same time. Right now, the, one's being reviewed. It was uh, the retirement of an agent and uh, one publishing house kind of going under that really delayed mine. Mine was actually scheduled to be out right now. They flew into oblivion, but it's encountered so much uh, bad luck. It was actually supposed to be out in 2005 with a big celebration, but uh, everybody got confused. Uh, Simon and Schuster offered, and then uh, Kensington later offered and was about to offer. That's when they got downsized. So it's it's been actually been accepted three times and not out.
1: <laughs> oh man! And by major publishers. Wow. So it's just uh, it's just a matter of bureaucracy and rigmarole and that kind of stuff till we get our hands on the books. And it's a question
2: now of a new agent. So,
1: All right. And aside from the Flight 19 book and the Cyclops book and the Bigfoot book, which sound like they've all been done and and already are, you know, complete or um, nearly complete, what what else do you have up your sleeve that we can look forward to uh, down the line from Gian Kassar?
2: I am now uh, getting some of my fiction out. One, Soma. It is a search for the body of Alexander the Great. It's kind of a Chandler-esque uh, international thriller. That a new agent is now requested to look at. Uh, I am still, I'm in indie film, so I am developing the stalking, uh, for film production. It would be a black and white motion picture, a horror motion picture surrounding the events of the Lost Nahani Valley. If you've ever heard of that, that's where all the prospectors have been found beheaded. Oh, weird. I uh, explained it's the tropical valley up by the Arctic Circle in the Yukon, area of canada the Mackenzie mountains the salmon mountains there is a valley because of the sulfur and volcanic activity that is tropical way up there and so it's supposed to be a lot of gold up there too and a lot of prospectors were found it's known as the headless Nahani. it's a big canadian thing and uh, many people have been found beheaded or just have simply never come back
1: bizarre what's the what's the idea behind that just sort of Competitive nature of, of gold hunting.
2: Uh, you no, know, well, there, there's rumors of, of hairy wild men up there too. Of, of Indians have come out with uh, images of mastodons or woolly mammoths. No, that's it, woolly mammoths on burned in the hide. And it, it's quite a land that time forgot. We're not exactly sure if it's a, if it was a madman up there, a mad trapper,
1: or if it's native
2: peoples that we
1: don't know anything about. Wow. Is this a, is this a, a documentary or a? Or? No,
2: this is uh, this is a theater motion picture. This is fiction based on certain facts. I'm developing it right now with Harry Welch. It may never get made, but we are developing it as an indie film. Awesome. He just came out with the Mill, uh, which is a horror film. He's an interesting man. He was deacon of the year or something in North Carolina, and he likes horror films. <laughs>
1: well, that's progressive. All right, so that's the stalking, and hopefully that'll be – hopefully people can be able to see that at some point, right?
2: Yes, hopefully next year. I'm still – I have to rewrite parts of the screenplay right now.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that sounds even – that sounds bizarre and interesting, too. You've, you've got your your finger in quite a lot of esoteric pies here, but they're all very interesting. Thank you. Um Well, Gian, i got to thank you first just for giving me so much time here. I knew uh, when I was reading the book and as I was dog-earing all the pages and stuff, I was saying to myself, we're never going to be able to cover all this in an hour because there's so much stuff I want to talk to him about and ask him about and cover here. And so I just really appreciate you giving me two and a half hours plus of time and of your valuable time, because it sounds like you're just wrapped up in all kinds of important research and and projects and stuff like that. So to take all that time out of your day to talk to us here on the show is really uh, just awesome of you, and I appreciate that. And as I said here in the introduction, I can't put this book over enough, folks. You gotta pick it up. There's such a dearth of. Bermuda Triangle information out there. You can't get any good Bermuda Triangle information out there anymore, it seems, with the exception of this amazing book. I was completely blown away by it this past week. Um, Just read it vociferously, you know, just plowing through it 50 pages a night, 60, 70 pages a night, just enjoying it so much. And as I noted, a big part of the book is tangential and parenthetical areas involving the Bermuda Triangle that Many people may not have considered uh as connecting to the triangle, but actually may do so, such as the lunar and martian anomalies and the old Pangea theories and worldwide floods and catastrophes and stuff like that. So you do a great job of researching a whole bunch of different areas outside of the triangle and trying to tie them into the triangle lore. As I said, I can't put the book over enough into the Bermuda Triangle. It's available all over the place. Amazon, Barnes and Noble you know, go to your bookstore, tell them to order it if, if they don't have it there, or just go home and order it online. But definitely want to buy this book. It's a must-have for any serious student of the esoteric. And that sounds like the listeners of my show. So go out and get into the Bermuda Triangle. It's awesome, folks. You know, I, I don't rave about books on the show unless I think they're really awesome. So this one definitely is a must-have. Gian, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Hopefully we can talk to you again in the future when the Bigfoot book drops, because uh i really just love digging into your research and and picking your brain on all these different esoteric subjects. Thank
2: you very much for having me.
1: That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to Gian Kassar for coming on the show. You can find out more from Gian Kassar at the website www.bermuda-triangle.org. Don't forget the hyphen, bermuda-triangle.org. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. we got a couple of letters here, so let's just dive right in. Our first one comes from Jake in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Here's what he has to say. I really enjoy BOA. At the age of 57, I am increasingly amazed at how much I don't know and cannot even imagine. The other day you referred to BOA as ringy Dink. It most certainly is not. I stumbled on a bit of UFO trivia which might be of interest to you, provided, of course, that you don't already know it. It seems that in 1947, the 509th Bomber Group was based in Roswell, New Mexico. In the late 1950s, the 509th moved to Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Then, in the 60s, Benny and Barney Hill of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, were abducted elsewhere in the state, and the famous Incident at Exeter sightings, not far from Portsmouth, ensued. See the book by John Fuller, Incident at Exeter, for details. Coincidence? Smoking Gun? I don't know, but I passed this info along for your information. Keep up the good work, Jake in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you very much for the email, Jake. For starters, no, I did not know that information, but I do find it pretty interesting. We've passed it along here to the folks who listen at the end of the program, and I'll forward the information along to the applicable former BOA Audio guests who may find that UFO trivia quite interesting. Regarding BOA as Rinky Dink, I'll admit that was a bit of self-deprecating humor on my part during the 100th episode. As I said during the beginning of that program, I am just tremendously humbled by how successful this entire enterprise has been over the last three or four years. And the reference to Rinky Dink was really in light of our very minimalistic approach to the website and the audio series Everything you hear is hand-done by me. The website's all coded in HTML on Notepad by myself. And the audio program is produced on a very bare-bones budget. Are we a rinky-dink organization? Probably not. But at the same time, I do take pride in the rawness of the program. Thanks for writing in. That was Jake from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The other email we're going to read this week has actually sort of a synchronistic connection to the previous email, so let's just dive into that one. This one's from Becky, no hometown listed. I've been listening to your show devotedly since Season 2, and I've donated several times to the cause, so I'm taking the liberty of making a suggestion for a show topic. Admittedly, it's a little hokey, but if it interests me, perhaps others will feel the same. The topic is Flight 401, specifically the ghosts of Flight 401. The story of the crash is, in itself, interesting, but not particularly paranormal. The apparition sightings, however, are amongst the most frequent, credible, and well-documented ones you will find. We all want to know what lies beyond. It is a universal question. I'm sure other listeners would enjoy such an episode. Thanks, Becky. Thanks for writing in, Becky. For starters, thank you so much for your donations. As many folks have heard time and time again at the end of the program, we do ask you for donations. And I hugely appreciate everybody that makes donations. Becky, you are one of the superstars of the BOA Audio listening audience, and I put forth huge thanks to you for your donations. Now, looking at the specific matter in which you write Flight 401, the reason why I said it's synchronistic is because I did a little research here into Flight 401 to find out if there was any books or websites about it, and I saw that the book that really put it on the map was by John Fuller, who was, of course, referenced in the previous email from Jake in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So we got a little John Fuller action going on here at the end of the program. Just from a brief cursory search here, getting ready for the end cap of the show, I didn't really find anyone who's picked up the mantle of the Ghost of Flight 401 since John Fuller's book. But I'm going to do a little more searching, and if somebody has a suggestion for a Ghost of Flight 401 guest, let me know, and I will definitely look into it and try and get them on the show. So thank you for writing in, Becky. I'll look into the Ghost of Flight 401. Thank you so much for your donations, as you say, to the cause. And I hope you've been enjoying BOA Audio Season 4 as it unfolds. There you go. That was BOA Audio listener feedback. Big thanks to Becky and Jake for writing in to the show. If you want to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's a number of ways to do it. Let me run down the list for you. Either go to binallofamerica.com and click the contact button. It's all over the website. It's easy to find. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And finally, if you want to have a little fluid discussion on the programs or just general esoterica, you're going to want to join up at the official BOA forum, www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. Any of those three methods puts your correspondence into my hands and makes it available to me for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. As the long-time listeners of the program know, we have a very strict format here at the end of the program, and you know what comes next. It is the thanks portion of the show. Let me run down the list of the amazing BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. They are putting together some amazing columns at All of America. you got to check these out, my friends. I can't push them enough. If you're a regular listener to BOA Audio, you got to be a regular reader at All of America because we have so much going on there every day at the website. Keep an eye on BOA here as December comes to a close. We're going to have a preview of some of the upcoming columnists for Been All of America, will be debuting in 2009, plus a spin off from Richard Thomas's Room 101. He's going to be doing a different column, a separate column at Been All of America that you're definitely going to want to check out. So stay tuned to BOA for a preview of that, and come on back in 2009 for some great new columnists who are going to be joining the BOA staff. Binallofamerica.com B I N N A L L L of America.com make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. What's on tap next here on the end cap of the program? I think you know what it is. If I had a little bell I'd be ringing it because it's time for me to ask you for donations. Folks who've been visiting the Banal of America website see that we've moved the donation button up a little higher here as the Christmas season rolls along counting down the days till Christmas asking you the rhetorical question Will you be our secret Santa? That's what I want to know. Will you make a donation to all of America and BOA Audio to help keep the program up and running and freely available to all of our great listeners and readers the world over? Everybody's feeling the financial crunch right now. Believe me, folks, I know that. But it is also the holiday season, so I'm asking you to look into your hearts, dig a little bit, and make a donation to BOA. How do you do that? Simple. Go to Benall of America, click the PayPal button, they'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations are greatly appreciated. Now it is time for a part of the program that I have been looking forward to since Thursday evening. It's time to preview next week's episode. Folks, for starters, I'm going to say when this episode drops next weekend, stop everything you're doing and put it on and listen to it. It is Definitely a classic edition of All of America Audio. It's one of our proudest traditions, the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, featuring the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. Coming on the heels of the publication of his self-proclaimed magnum opus, Flying Sauces in Science, we're going to discuss a number of elements to the new tome. We're going to find out about Project Blue Book Special Report number 13, the mysterious lost Blue Book text. Stan's relationships and thoughts on legendary ufologists James E. MacDonald and J. Allen Hynek, his feud with Isaac Asimov, the crash of the nuclear rocket industry, plus big-picture analysis like how to solve ufology's public relations problems, and Stan's thoughts on the state of Roswell in relation to mainstream media and science acceptance. On top of all that, as you heard me promoting here at the end of the last couple episodes of BOA Audio, In the second half of the program, we turn the questioning over to members of the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, who had their chance to ask the father of modern day ufology one question each. Via their contributions, we're going to find out about his thoughts on the connection between UFOs and altered consciousness, his disagreements with Kevin Randall on Roswell, ufology in a post-disclosure world, getting the media interested in UFOs his opinion on what is the best abduction case ever, his feud with Paul Kimball, sabermetrics in baseball, the alleged 1969 Sverdlovsky Russia UFO crash, why he doesn't subscribe to the Philip Corso version of Roswell, the journal article Sovereignty in the UFO, Project Blue Book Special Report number 14, and where the U.S. would be in space if they kept going to the moon. Those are all courtesy of USAV.com member questions that Stan was kind enough to answer. In total, it is one of the very best editions of BOA Audio ever, and I'm not just slathering on the hyperbole because it is the holiday special. When I hang up the phone after doing a Stan Friedman episode, I always feel like we could have done a little more. I always felt like it could be a little bit better. I always feel like it didn't quite live up to what I hoped the episode could be. But I can honestly tell you when I hang up the phone this past Thursday after taping this episode, I did a fist pump in the air, and I knew that it was definitely going to be a part of our highlight reel and take its place amongst the classic episodes of BOA Audio. It's Stanton Friedman. It's the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. You do not want to miss this episode. It is amazing. I can't put it over enough. And on that note, we wrap it up here for this week's edition of BOA Audio. Once again, big, big, super huge thanks to Gian Casar for coming on the show. I really appreciate all that extra time he gave us. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.